0: Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And today we bring you a mini-series of thematic episodes on the importance of political debate online. And for that, I would like to start with a personal story. In the summer of 2018, I started a master's course on international relations at the University in Lisbon. One of the classes that I had to take, the professor, an experienced political operator, was at the time the president of a Luso-American Foundation. And because of the work done by the foundation, the professor had to deal with a lot of delegations of members both from the US Congress and from the two American political parties. Something interesting started to happen and that was I began to add information in particular when referring to the influence of the United States in the world order. One of the examples, the professor was saying that there's this commission in the US Congress that deals with information from intelligence agencies. And then I added, yes, it's under the presidency of the Senator Richard Burr, Republican. In another example, we were discussing the fact that there was legislation introduced in the House of Representatives that could stop a president of the United States of trying to leave NATO without Congress permission. And I said, yes, that was actually submitted by the House Majority Leader Stanley Hoyer. One final example, the professor was missing the name of the Trump administration's secretary of commerce that at the time was spearheading a trade war with the European Union. I offered the name was Wilbur Ross and then I added, incredibly how to see such a person with so many conflicts of interest being on that position. Finally, the professor probably got tired of me being a smarty pants and he asked me directly, how the hell do you know so much about so many details of the inner workings of US politics? And it took me half a second to reply because i'm on twitter but dear listener if you don't want to take my word for it just listen to political podcasting or even sports podcasting and you will notice how often hosts and guests mention that well like i said before on twitter or already said this on twitter or someone mentioned this on twitter twitter is just an example of course you can think about facebook or reddit or youtube a survey from Statista with a sample of around a thousand respondents by each member state of the European Union showed that in Greece and Bulgaria, 71% of adults use social media as a source of news. In Poland, that percent is 66, Hungary 64, Romania 60, Portugal 58, Spain 65, Croatia 64, Slovakia 54, and Italy, Sweden, Ireland with around 50%. In the United States, a peer research with 5,170 respondents showed that 54% said that they get either sometimes or often news from social media. In 1787, James Madison in the Federalist Papers defended that governance by representatives need a refinement and enlargement of public views by, and I quote, passing them by a medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may be discerned the true interests of their country," end quote. With the emergence of social media platforms, especially Facebook and Twitter, political debate moved from the public square to the digital world, and with that, there was also the conditions for the development of polarization, radicalization, and disinformation. Can democracy survive the internet is a vital question. Is the online political debate deteriorating the democratic process? will everyone now have their own realities and alternative facts? A function in democracy depends on the ability of the citizens to make informed decisions. However, information challenges like volume, type, quality and reach affect this political debate. In the publication Technology and Democracy Understanding the Influence of Online Technology on Political Behavior and Decision-Making this was ordered by the EU Science Hub from the European Commission Science and Knowledge Service, an analysis about technology and democracy understood these interactions. In the opinion of the researchers, there are key pressure points that users, legislators, and policymakers should take into account when thinking of the functioning of a healthy political debate, a fruitful marketplace of ideas, and a robust arena of discussion. To know, what is your attention economy? When we are online, our attention and our engagement are sold as a product to advertisers. Another one is micro-targeting. Facebook algorithms make an analysis of your homepage and only needed 300 likes, can predict the user's personality with great accuracy and that opens the door for tailor-made advertisement, for example, of political nature. Digital architecture. Digital platforms use behavioral techniques that can cause a constant presence of the user and also the engagement of the user with digital platform that also increases our time in the platform and our attention given to it another one is algorithm curation algorithms have been functioning as a black box and that has problems related to transparency and accountability a final one that is misinformation and disinformation A recent Eurobarometer survey, the flash Eurobarometer 464, fake news and disinformation online, took data from all member states and revealed that over half of the respondents say that they came across fake news at least once a week. Other concern is how platforms are gateway to extremists and extreme content and how this flows then into political debate. Let me give you an example. How can we go from an obscure American living in the Philippines administrator of an anonymous image board website, to the creation of QAnon that has millions of followers, hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube, and some of his believers were in the front lines of the attack of the seat of power in the United States. However, not everything is doom and gloom. Political debate can happen online and in a positive and constructive way. A peer research with four thousand five hundred and seven respondents showed that there is a facilitation of engagement and involvement in political issues online. 90% of social media users say that they often discuss comment or post about politics and government on digital platforms. 8 in 10 of the users think that the digital platforms help get involved in issues that matter to them. A similar number of fields like social media help bring new voices into political discussion. Digital platforms also have a positive effect to allow to know different positions and how to interact with them. 50% of social media users say that they have been surprised by a political view of someone on their own network because of something that person posted. Eventually, this could lead to a possible change in opinions. One in five social media users say that they have modified their view about a political or social issue because of something they saw on social media. Another point of interest is content moderation or editorial action from gatekeepers. There's an entire field of intense scrutiny due to legal protections measure of digital platforms, being the safe harbor law in the European Union or regulation 230 of the Telecommunications Act in the United States. And here there are some very interesting indicators in the European Union. A special Eurobarometer, Eurobarometer 477 of November 2018, showed that 73% of Europeans are concerned about disinformation and misinformation online, particularly when leading to elections. 76% consider that the rules for traditional media should apply to digital platforms and their users. 81% are in favor that this platform should be clearer in what are the contents of political advertising and who's paying for it. The European Commission tried to respond to these concerns with the new Digital Services Act, but also the EU Code of Practices of Disinformation, and promoting media literacy and fighting hate speech online. So, with this long throat clearing from my part, let's start the mini-series of episodes on the future of political debate online. And to do that, I'm very happy of having a group of experts and thinkers that will help me bring this topic to you. For example, I'll be talking with Miroslava Savidis, a research fellow at the Democracy and Resilience Group at Globsec. I'll be speaking also with Professor Teresa Rodriguez-Ballel, part of the commercial law at the University of Carlos III in Madrid, and Daniel Kadek and Matias Schandin. Daniel Kadek, of course, our executive director of European Liberal Forum, and Matthias Schandin, co-founder and executive chairman of WARP Foundation in Sweden. So, with no further ado, let's start this larger debate, and I bring you Miroslava Saviris. I'm here with Miroslava Saviris. Miroslava, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me again.
0: Oh, it's great to have you in here. And like I said in introduction, you work in Globesec, which is a think tank based in Bratislava. You're also a research fellow at the Democracy and Resilience Group inside Globesec. And you are also part of the Alliance for Healthy Infosphere. And in fact, I was present at the webinar, The Future of Digital Platforms, Improving Transparency of Political Advertising, which you organized and very masterfully uh, you uh, moderated. And this is one of the reasons that I ask you to come to the podcast. And also because you have a great piece, which is Years of Digital Radicalization as Born Angry Fruit. Something that I strongly recommend our listeners to go and look. I'll put the link on the show notes where you deal with the question of political debate getting more and more polarized. And are you actually going to that polarization as a possible explanation for what we saw happening in January 6th at the US Capitol. So let's start here. Please give us your view on where we are right now.
1: Right. So in terms of commenting on the Capitol, Capitol Hill attack, I wouldn't want to to claim that you know all of the violence and problems uh, that that occurred there and are still a part of this this polarized political landscape are solely l- result of, of issues that we've got in the digital space because that would be um, that would be an oversimplification of what is going on. Obviously. I do believe that it always boils down to the political leader himself or herself and the way they yield their power and the the way they speak to their constituents. But on the other hand, we need to recognize the fact that digital space as it is um, designed currently does play a part in this in this polarization process because the systems that are very let's say non-transparent at the moment um, are easily misused by nefarious actors. And I think the interesting bit about the Capitol Hill uh, was a surge sort of You know this realization that this is not something that only disinformation actors in non-democratic countries can misuse but it's actually a very real problem for democracies as well so i think it was like a moment of reckoning and as terrible as it was it is this moment where finally you know you're faced with a problem that it's so blatantly obvious that it cannot be ignored anymore in a way
0: Let me go into a little more detail, Um, as I agree that we cannot just give too much of explanation power regarding political debate and what happened in January 6th. But as we know more and more about that day and particularly what led to that day, on Facebook, for example, there was a lot of shatter regarding organization, regarding uh, the reasons for the kind, this kind of event. Uh, there were posts where conservatives were hyping the false claim that elections were stolen. So with this kind of working hypothesis, let me ask you again, how much do you think that we can uh, assume that there is an effect on political debate on digital platforms can d- then lead to this kind of events?
1: I think I look at it sort of from the other side, let's say. I believe that the politics of radicalization and populism that is Sweeping across Europe and 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 uh, the USA and other democratic states is a byproduct of our digital transformation. In a way, the way we communicate online and with one another has changed so dramatically over, let's say, last ten years. It's also reflected politically, and this you know, digital revolution has got plenty of advantages. I always want to stress the fact that, you know, I use social media every day and I think it's great. (laughs) So I'm not here to, you know, say, you know, let's banish all social media. Um, And also it's progress that you cannot stop. But this surge of um, technological progress that um, basically, allows us to, to, to stay more online and communicate online with one another and also to have our voices amplified through algorithms, you know, and reach to our followers and constituents, um, basically changes the whole uh, communication landscape as we have known it before. And as we know, digital platforms have the tendency to promote polarizing content because this is something that has to do with how their business model operates and this business model is data based because um, our data that we put into um, social media digital platforms is valuable It's it's a form of product that can be further sold but also it's advertising based so essentially the more ads you are exposed to the more income certain platform earns and because polarizing content creates more engagement it makes sense to you know to develop these system so as to promote this polarizing content because that will engage more people and more people will hence stay online so this is where we sort of come into a conflict of interests, because for democratic polity or any kind of democratic society, it is not in our interest to have the discussion as polarized as possible, but it's in the interest of um, these business models. So we need to find a way to recalibrate these systems so that private enterprise and, and technological progress are still, um, um, let's say, preserved and fostered but at the same time uh, toned down on on these um, harmful effects of these systems that are badly affecting our, our democracies at the moment. So it's a matter of finding this extremely delicate balance. And in order to do that, you have to have all stakeholders present because this is not something that, you know, um, European institutions can do on their own or that civil society can do on its own or that private companies and tech giants can do on on their own. Because there was this consensus for a long time, um, particularly in the Silicon Valley, that. Technological progress should never be burdened with any regulation, you know, and this has been the mantra of the tech sector for a very long time, but we clearly see that it's not so simple and that if we just carry on this way, uh, our societies will face, you know, increasing problems compared to what we have actually seen. On the capitol hill and i think also the tech sector is coming to realization that this is no longer tenable and you know when i'm listening to um new york times podcast the daily you you will you know there are facebook advertisements there uh <laughs> sprinkled now and then saying that facebook is for regulation now you know they do want a regulation but they need regulation that will you know maybe their perspective on the regulation is different from somebody working at a public institution but i think right now there is already a consensus and the good thing is also that now there is consensus that we could call transatlantic because so far european union has been leading on the on on the discussion of regulation of the digital space with the need to you know update the e-commerce directive that's 20 years old And this discussion has been present for several years now in the European Union. But I think with the Capitol Hill, with the change of administration in the U.S., the discussion there is also basically turning towards regulation, even though this regulation can look very different from what we are trying to envision in the EU.
0: Those are great points, Miroslava, and I will take the opportunity to echo some of the arguments that you just made. For example, one of the legacies of the Clinton administration was the idea that there should be a growth of the digital market, but without too much of regulation, and we're paying a little bit the price right now. Other thing that you mentioned, which I find very interesting, and also some of very well-known journalists and commentaries on this topic made that point. For example, I'm thinking about Kara Swisher from New York Times, is that the fact that Twitter banned the former President Trump from the platform surely has something to do with the fact that the Democrats are back in power and the Congress and the White House can then promote all kinds of regulations to try to manage these digital companies a little better. And finally, the other thing that you mentioned that also caught my attention, and, and please feel free to expand on this, is the lack of algorithm moderation. Um, I was very impressed by a documentary by HBO called Q Into the Storm, where uh, Colin Holback which is the uh, writer and mostly the director of the show, he presents the effects of platforms that has no algorithm moderation. For example, 4chan, 8chan, 8kun. And even without that kind of influence, it is easy to see the innate tendencies for polarization, for radicalization, for promotion of violence. But then you, when you add algorithm function, things get even worse. So what are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, QAnon—that's a whole another phenomenon. And uh, the interesting thing about QAnon um, conspiracy theory is that really it isn't new. You know, it's, if you if you look into those premises, this this conspiracy theory is basically like another version of the New World Order conspiracy theory with certain twists. You know, which are just more contemporary, I'd say. But to me, it's just another variation on on these very very old conspiracy theory which literally um some of these conspiracy theories you know date back as like the era of enlightenment and in some way shape or form they they survive and and they transform and they just become this part of like an i don't know i'd call it like an urban mythology or something you know but the thing is they always they were always influential only in certain circles. So like you mentioned 8 Chan and Fortune, you know, these were or still are sort of like fringe platforms. You know, they were not really platforms where where millions of users Um, in a a given country would actually um meet you know unlike facebook which for example in central europe has like a total monopoly let's say on 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 social media use obviously it's it's a bit uh diverse currently but still you know it it does have this monopolistic almost um, position on the market but then as you said once these fringe narratives become Sort of caught up in these new systems of of, uh, of the big tech, it becomes increasingly difficult to 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 manage it because it's it's almost like a, it's almost like a forest catching fire. You know, it's very difficult to put it out. And the issue there with putting it out is, I think we've touched upon this briefly, is exactly like the freedom of speech because I think it's. I mean, circling back to the discussion of political advertising, it's one thing to to pay for an ad, which I believe should be fact-checked, you know, and because obviously you're you're actually putting this uh, advertising, whether it's issue-based or whether it's uh, part of your election campaign or whatever, you're putting it through the system and a service that you're paying for. And, you know, why should this be any different from, let's say, TV political advertising, which have to be Regulated in one way or another, so to me this is quite logical that political uh, ads should actually be fact-checked prior to being processed and disseminated. But when we talk about organic political speech, you can't actually okay, you can fact-check it, but I would argue that you can't take it down. You know, I'm. I believe that and and this may sound controversial but you know you have the right to lie on the internet and you have the light to disseminate this information because this is basically freedom of speech so I mean we need to draw the line somewhere and if we simply wanted to um, in quotation marks I'm saying this clean out uh, the digital space of all the ugly things that we simply despise or do not want to see there, then we may essentially um, undo the achievements of, of democratic progress that, you know, have has been for centuries in the making in an effort to, to fight something. But by fighting it, you're creating even bigger problem. So I don't know if that makes sense. It,
0: it does. No problem there. Actually, I had a question for you that was ready to to, to ask you, ready to go, and that regards exactly the need for fact checkers. We cannot just keep visiting places on the Internet where we are full of this information, for example, of political nature. There is, however, a gray area, and that is political speech where there is room for exaggeration. For exaggeration for lying for attacking your opponent's ideology and even positions and actually this kind of right it's protected in when I'm thinking about United States and Europe by law by uh, rulings from 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 courts so my question to you is related then to what we know as the sliding scale and that is when we start censoring things, how much damage can we do And by controlling speech, by controlling freedom of speech and by controlling the sharing of political the political ideas and arguments?
1: Yes, that's a great question. And I think, you know, it's a philosophical one. And most of these questions that we're trying to so sort out now that we're trying to answer prior to putting um the european legislation in place is basically re-evaluating all of these concepts that we have basically been taking for granted prior to the digital revolution because we have never foreseen that uh, the digital revolution can also have this kind of dark side which it has we all thought you know in the 1990s and early 2000s that internet will be this great liberating force which it has been in in many ways but then we are also confronted with the dark side and i think we have to again like reevaluate things like exactly like what does it mean freedom of speech in the digital world you know does it mean freedom of reach does it mean uh, the right to have an influence over your followers? In case you do have this large followership, does it mean that you should have more responsibility, You should that you should be held to higher standards? Or does it mean that you should be held to the same standards as a regular user? Or if you're a politician, does it mean that you should be held to a lower standard? So it's like... I believe that every country or every sort of, let's say, um, kind of culture in terms of like Western culture, you know, or or the European Union is trying to answer these questions based based on our philosophical and ideological background as democratic societies. And the way we answer these very tricky questions will then form basis for any kind of regulation and our attempts to deal with these issues and they will have, their significance is massive because the way we we arrange these laws now and the way we answer these questions now will actually shape our societies for years, decades, you know, if not longer, to come, because the digital sphere and its importance in our lives is only going to be bigger. It's not going to be smaller. So actually, these questions are extremely important. But I also think that, as you mentioned with the US case, there will be differences in how different states approach this question so for example now in florida i believe they are preparing a law whereby digital platforms won't be able to suspend a politician's um digital you know a platform account for longer than for a couple of weeks
0: well yes (laughs) I don't I don't think that will survive the yeah. court case yeah. on, yeah. for example, the United States, uh, the protections under the First Amendment. But the intention is there. And there are some uh, senators, yeah. for example, in the United States, uh, mainly in the conservative spectrum, that would like to repeal Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996 that provides the good Samaritan protection from civil liability from operators of computer services.
1: Yeah. So this goes in very different directions in the US, that's why I find it very interesting because on one, it's like everybody agrees that the regulation is needed, but the way people, um, politicians foresee this regulation is like so blatantly different. So for example, in this Florida case, this protects political speech, you know? But then the question is, should politicians actually have you know, be held to lower standards than a regular user online, because this is what this law is actually striving to do. So, you know, it just depends on how different countries grapple with these massive questions and, and which side they take and, and what perspective they, they look at it from. So in the U.S., I, I just, I believe it's going to be like very interesting struggle, because even though you have this bipartisan agreement, on the need to like do something about this problem these two parties being you know as polarized as they are they see the problem completely differently like you mentioned at the beginning that Facebook you know has the tendency to to promote uh, more of a um, right wing, let's say, extreme views, but uh, people, you know, from the, I'm not saying that every Republican politician or, or, or voter believes this, but the narrative that, that, that the Republican voices are suppressed, uh, this narrative is very popular. Obviously, it was also very well promoted by, by the former president, so this is one of his legacies as well but you know and and the other side doesn't really see it this way at all so it's like where do you find the consensus well
0: many articles on newspaper like washington post and new york times that i follow more closely uh, made that kind of argument that you just mentioned and that is that facebook was terrified on suppressing content from conservatives even if there was misinformation or dangerous dangerous speech because then that would turn against Facebook due to a narrative driven by Republicans that digital companies are promoting of cancel culture, of censorship, banning all kinds of opinions that are not in the mainstream. So um, there are very interesting dynamics when uh, we're talking about this kind of equilibrium between speech of different natures and what digital companies do. Miroslav, time flies when I talk to you. You're such a great guest and uh, still have a couple of questions for you. So therefore, I'm going to ask you if you please come back to the pod again. I know I keep asking you this, but once again, um, and one of the things, for example, you mentioned that there is work done at the European Union level. For example, Digital Services Act, some initial regulation on political advertising, and also just that deserves other conversation. But before I let you go, there are one other thing that I would like you to go into. Myself, as someone that lives on Twitter, I should change. Actually, I should change my place of residency to be Twitter. Please send things to Twitter. So for people like me, I was impressed with what Jack Dorsey, the CEO of the company, did when he decided that they would stop having political advertisings in the platform. But particularly, there was something he said in a blog post on Twitter where he said that political message reach should be earned, not bought. I think this is a great sentence from Jack. He was very, you know, um, was thinking correctly when he wrote when he wrote this political message reach should not be should be earned, not bought. Can do you think can we move in this direction? And that is either by a majority position or a consensus or a legislation that political ads are not going to be the way to reach people. Either if you have ten thousand followers, or one million followers, you cannot buy your way into the uh, political debate. What is your thoughts on this?
1: I mean, this is, again, fascinating discussion and again, very philosophical, because what we are talking about here is the way political advertising functions already today outside of the digital space you know particularly when you look in the us often you will see that the highest uh, political game is is played by influential wealthy individuals because yes that po- you know political advertising helps you get there helps you uh, get visible and and reach out to your constituents so my question would be i mean i look at it from all sorts of you know different perspectives i don't have clear opinion on this because i think i think it's partly utopian thinking that you don't need to buy political ads in order to to succeed as a politician that's one thing but also i think it doesn't really work like that in the offline world you know but maybe we don't need to you know, maybe we don't need to be guided by what's happening offline in order to design our digital spaces, because we don't need to sort of stick to the old rules of the game. But w- what I would argue is that in the offline world, where political advertising is still a thing, you know, people buy billboards and campaign in, on TV and all sorts of other things newspapers and, and other ways. But at least there is some kind of oversight you know but the trouble with online advertising is that the the whole process is not very transparent it's been improved slightly thanks to ad libraries and 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 code of practice on disinformation and things like that but still it's it's basically much more um, unclear and non-transparent environment than than having political advertising offline essentially but i do like Having this discussion and just, you know, thinking about it in, let's say, a um, very open way where you don't take this issue for granted, where I like the idea of not, um, you know, of looking at political ads and asking yourself, well, do we really need it to to operate this way? And I also understand that for, you know, like you mentioned, level playing field, that these systems currently as they function, yes, they tend to favor influential individuals, whether they be politicians or or otherwise, because they already have large followership and, and have incomes that can sustain massive, massive ad campaigns. But that being said, looking at it from the other side, I would also say that political advertising in the online space actually levels the playing field because to buy ads online and to target them, even micro-target them, is very cheap, you know, and anybody can afford it. So, in a way, um, in a way, it's easier to reach constituents, even to politicians who are insignificant. And and this is the democratizing force of digital platforms. And I think we all know politicians who have been literally made by social media, even organic engagement and then inorganic, as in terms of being paid for. But I believe there are a number of, of, of politicians, you know, that I could name in Central Europe whose basically influence has risen along with the influence of, of the digital space. So it's a really complex, complex thing. But what I do think we absolutely need in terms of political advertising is clear definitions. You know, what is political advertising? Because this is also not simple. Like, it's not just when politicians you know pay for their ads during time of the election you can have you can have civil society actors or even individuals paying for the so-called issue-based ads which don't necessarily have to support their particular uh, political party but they can clearly support certain political agenda or you know ideological agenda at the time of the election, and this can actually impact and sway elections without them being paid for by um, political actors and without them necessarily even mentioning political parties. So it's like, where do we where do we draw the line? How do we define political speech? How do we define political ads? you know, how do we limit or how do we shape the ability for, for micro-targeting, you know, Signal had this great campaign um, a few days ago where they essentially went to Facebook, they created this, this political, this ad campaign directed at, at Facebook users and they, they wanted to run this on Facebook and Instagram, but Facebook actually stopped these ads. But what they did was basically targeted these ads through through micro-targeting at the users, you know, telling to them in the ads, you know, Facebook knows that you're single, that you're living here and there, that you're looking to move, you know, that you work here and all of this combined basically personal information about you um, was part of the advertising what they wanted to do was essentially you know warn the users about the level of details that digital platforms hold about you but if we think about how much of this very sensitive information can be then used to actually tweak and target you with particular political messages you know then we have to ask what is ethical and what is no longer ethical, you know, so massive questions all around.
0: Again, Miroslava, it's great to have you on the podcast, you have the ability of opening the door for many more conversations and reflections on the topics that we were just discussing. Uh, But for now, as we're getting to the end of our time, please tell our listeners where they can follow your work
1: right so they can follow us on on globsec uh, um, pages essentially on our either on our website so that's uh, globsec.org or on social media we've got twitter account facebook account linkedin account Um, so that's all um that's all there we're very active on social media and myself too i um you can find me i'm using you know my name under all the social media linkedin facebook and twitter as well so that's definitely good places to to um find our work
0: by the way and, and as a goodbye note it's also important to mention the work done by the alliance for healthy infosphere Uh, that you also can visit and I'll put the link on the podcast show notes and if you are interested in this kind of topic you do you do need to follow the work done by Miroslava by the Alliance and by Globesec but for now I'm going to thank you so much for coming to the podcast
1: thank you so much for this great conversation Ricardo
0: I'm back, just a reminder that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher and if you feel like it, give us a 5-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now, I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe Podcast. It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily...